G'day. Welcome to God's Word Today's World, applying scripture to modern life. My name is Dan Van Werkhoven. I'm an Aussie writer and pastor living with my wife on a tiny island called Saipan. Join me today as I dig into scripture and explore how God's Word can still be applied to our lives thousands of years later. Hey, you're listening to episode 24 of the God's Word Today's World podcast. In today's episode, we're looking at a sin which every single person on the face of this earth struggles with. Pride. It's perhaps the most insidious of sins, because even when we think we're being humble, even when life is ridiculously hard and we think there's no way pride could attack us, that we have nothing, even then, there is pride. The moment we say, I have nothing to worry about pride, is the exact moment we should be most worried about being proud. If you want access to the show notes and the full transcript, you can find those over at www.godswordtodaysworld.com forward slash listen and look for episode 24 on the list. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. But without further ado, let's dig in. Last week in episode 23 of the God's Word Today's World podcast, we looked at Antioch as they made time to pray before they set about the big ministry endeavor of sending Barnabas and Paul on a missionary journey. They discovered in their time of faithful prayer that God was calling the two for his journey, for this journey. And even though the church would doubtless miss their teaching and leadership, God had another task planned. How many things have we started in life just because they seem like a good idea? I know I've started dozens of things because it seemed good or I felt like it. Only to later realize I've started too many things. I've committed days, weeks, months, years to something that I never even prayed about. And it led me to the question, how much time have we wasted in our lives because we didn't stop and take the time to pray first? Pray until God gave us an answer before we started the new thing. The sad reality is, for me, I've probably wasted years of my life chasing the new and shiny things that excite me, but draw me away from my service to God. So I challenged us to, before committing to things, take the time to pray. Take an hour, take a day, take a week. It's not a waste of time. Time spent with our Father in heaven is never wasted time. Time in prayer is never wasted. This week, we're looking at perhaps one of the most dangerous sins of all, pride. Our passage today is Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 52. And this is the World English Bible. Now Paul and his company set sail for Paphos, and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem, and that is Mark. But they, passing from Perga, came to Antioch of Pisidia. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. After, re- after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Brothers, 
If you have any word of exhortation for the people, speak. Paul stood up and gesturing with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people chose our fathers and exalted the people when they stayed as aliens in the land of Egypt, and with an an uplifted arm he led them out. For a period of about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land for an inheritance for about four hundred and fifty years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Afterward, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, to whom he also testified, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From this man's offspring, God has brought salvation to Israel according to his promise. Before his coming, when John had first preached the baptism of repentance to Israel. As John was fulfilling his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one comes after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of the stock of Abraham, and those amongst you who fear God, the word of this salvation is sent to you. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't know him, nor the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Though they found no cause for his death, they still asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had fulfilled all things that were written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were his witnesses to the people. We bring you good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this to us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. Concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, He has spoken thus, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not allow your holy one to see decay. For David, after he had in his own generation served the counsel of God, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw decay. But he whom God raised up saw no decay. Be it known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man is proclaimed to you remission of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come on you which is spoken in the prophets. Behold, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will in no way believe if one declares it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and of the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, 
who, speaking to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city was gathered together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with jealousy and contradicted the things which were spoken by Paul and blasphemed. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that God's word should be spoken to you first, since indeed you thrust it from yourselves and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. As the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Lord's word was spread abroad throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and threw them out of their borders. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So Barnabas and Paul continue their missionary journey. They travel to Perga and John Mark leaves them to return to Jerusalem. From there they head to Pisidenia, Antioch, not the same Antioch that we looked at last week. They head to the synagogue on Saturday and sit in on a service. Now perhaps Paul wore his pharisaical robes so they recognized him as someone in authority, which is why they asked him out of everyone there to speak. Or perhaps it was because they were guests. It's hard to know for certain why they asked Paul and Barnabas to speak. However, what we can be sure of is they, they were not expecting what Paul had to say. In a similar fashion to Stephen, Paul starts from the books that these Jews hold as true. He starts with Egypt and runs through history and emphasizes God's plan. God chose the Israelites, their ancestors, to be his people. God made them prosper in Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt. God endured their sin in the desert for 40 years. God overthrew the nations in Canaan who were wicked and sinful and gave the land to his people as he had promised Abraham 450 years prior. God gave them judges to lead the land. God gave them kings to rule them when they demanded kings. God chose Saul, a man everyone looked at and said, now he's kingly and mighty. And God showed that what we judge as worthy as a king doesn't always make a good king. So God chose David, a man after his own heart, and showed Israel the importance of looking beyond appearances. As Paul is talking through all this, I can just imagine the Jews sitting there nodding along, saying amen to every point. God is good. Paul paints a picture of how God chose Israel, yet Israel rebelled. God still loved Israel and rescued them. Then they rebelled again. Time and again through history, Israel rebelled against God. Everything, Everyone listening knew that. They knew their ancestors were terrible at following God. But that's okay, people make mistakes. They, however, were great at following God. They'd never rebel against Him. But Paul has only just gotten started. 
and he continues with the pattern of God doing things for his chosen people, the Israelites, and then rebelling by saying this, God brought the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through David's line, as he had promised, predicted by the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Now some of the Jews are starting to get uncomfortable. They know that God will send the Messiah. They still believe that today. But Paul is saying the, the Savior already came, and his name is Jesus. And the people of Jerusalem and their rulers broke their law in order to sentence him to death. Though Pilate ruled Jesus innocent, they demanded he have Jesus killed. Many were perhaps thinking at this point, okay, that was the Jerusalem Jews who this man is saying rebelled against God. We're still okay. And Paul continues with his theme of what God did. He says that despite what the Jews did to Jesus, God raised his son from the dead, and he spent 40 days with the disciples who are now his witnesses throughout the world. Paul doesn't end with that. He dives back into the Old Testament scriptures that these men and women steadfastly believe, and he shows how they point to Jesus. And after declaring that any who believe in Jesus can have true forgiveness of sins, something these Jews know they don't have because year after year they've had to offer sacrifices for their sins, Paul ends with a warning. He warns that scoffers will wander and perish. They will hear the truth of Jesus and reject it and die. I can't help but wonder if Paul was perhaps a little nervous about how the Jews would respond to this. I'm sure he well remembered how he and the others responded to Stephen's message, to Stephen saying the same thing. And Paul stood by and held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen to death for his words. So is Paul wondering if the same will happen to him and Barnabas now? But they invite Paul and Barnabas back. And as they're leaving, many follow and ask further questions. How encouraged would Barnabas and Paul have been at this point? God's people, the Jews, were listening. And add to that, they're asked to return the following week to speak again. And so they do return to a massive crowd. How encouraging and exciting that would have been for Paul and Barnabas. But then it all falls apart. Just when perhaps Paul is thinking the Jews here might actually listen, be better than the Jews in Jerusalem, the same thing happens again. The same sin rears its ugly head. Pride. They're not even angry at what Paul is saying. They're angry that he's more popular than they are. And how ridiculous is that? They're mad because more people came to listen to Paul and Barnabas than came each week to listen to them. And in their pettiness, they began to contradict Paul and heap abuse on him. Not because they believed he was completely wrong, but because they didn't like him being more popular. They rejected Jesus because of pride. And so Paul and Barnabas turned to the Gentiles there and addressed them. Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Amidst the clamor of the Jews heaping abuse on them, Paul and Barnabas turn to the God-fearing Gentiles in the room and tell them they rejected their God who sacrificed so much for them. 
what are you going to do? In the midst of that disappointment and the heartache over their own people, Paul and Barnabas see the Gentiles rejoice and honor the word of the Lord. And all those who are appointed for eternal life chose to believe in Jesus. Because of the Gentiles, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And even though the Jewish leaders, in their fit of jealousy and rage, incited the leading women and men of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas, the gospel of Jesus spread through the region, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And so that is the danger of pride. What stands out to me most in this passage is just how dangerous pride is. Acts 13 is a stern warning about pride. Paul made it clear from the Old Testament, the books the Jews also believed, that the Jewish people were prone to pride. Time and again through the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel stop trusting God and trust themselves. We see them believing that it's through their own greatness that their nation is so powerful. And so God humbles them. Time and again, God had to humble his people, his people. And in Paul's day, so many of the Jews and the Pharisees had great pride in being God's chosen people. God hadn't chosen other nations. God chose them. That meant they were better than everyone else, especially those stinking Samaritans. They were puffed up with pride. Through the Old Testament, they rejected God because of pride. And when God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to them, they could literally look upon the face of God's son through whom the world was created, and they were too proud to accept him. They witnessed hundreds of miracles, miracles possible only by God's power. But because of pride, they rejected him. In the end, because of pride, they broke their own laws and traditions, which they clung to religiously, and pushed through a trial at night. And they purposefully lied to try have Jesus put to death. But when Pilate would have none of that, they started a riot, which they knew was the one sure way to get a Roman official charged with keeping the peace to do what they wanted. They did exactly what their ancestors had done time And again, they looked back at their ancestors and doubtless rolled their eyes saying, How could you reject God? He was so obviously at work when he saved you from Egypt. And they did the exact same thing. They saw God through Jesus and because of pride, the son of the God they claimed to follow. And we're not so different. Here today... It's easy to read this stuff, to hear this stuff, and scoff at the pride of these people. It's easy to say, we'd never do that. We'd never reject God. We'd never scoff at him or ignore him. We're better. We actually follow God. We know better these days because we can see the trap they fell into. But let me ask this question. How many times have you been convicted by the Holy Spirit regarding sin in your life? but done nothing about it? How many times has God spoken directly to us through his word, the Bible, and we've jumped online to Google reasons why that Bible passage actually means something else, so we don't need to change our lives. 
How many times have we had a Christian brother or sister express concern over something they say is sin in our life, but we just wave the concern away? Pride is just as dangerous today as it was all throughout the Bible, and we're just as likely to fall for it today as the Jews in Antioch were. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2b in the NIV says this, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Who do we think that Paul is, that, sorry, that God is talking to in Isaiah 66? He's talking to Israel. Specifically, he's talking to people who go to the temple to offer sacrifices to him, who bring offerings to him, who burn incense for him. In verses 3 to 4 in the same passage, he has this to say to those people. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns a memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. In this passage, God tells his people who claim to be worshipping him that unless they have humble and contrite spirits, unless they tremble at his word, they're no better than anyone who worships an idol. Today, We're the body of Christ as believers. We're the church, Jesus' bride. God's standard hasn't changed. He's still just as disgusted by pride. It's clear what he thinks of the proud in Isaiah 66, and he still thinks the same today. Unless we have humble and contrite spirits, unless we tremble at his word, then it doesn't matter what we do and claim as for God. If we're proud, our offerings to him are a rotten stench. We could run the most successful ministry in the world, but if we're proud, we disgust God. And pride can lead us down a dangerous path. If we remain proud, eventually it can lead us to believing that we don't need Jesus. We're good enough for God. It's not enough to know that Jesus exists. The devil knows that Jesus exists. He's spoken face to face with God. Knowing God exists isn't enough. Knowing Jesus exists isn't enough. We need to put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Acknowledge that we need what he did on the cross for us. It's very hard to do that when filled with pride. We look on and see people doing seemingly great things for Jesus, but that doesn't mean they actually know him. It's what's in on the inside that counts to God. Just because someone claims to follow Jesus, that does not mean that they do. Just because we say we know Jesus, if we're proud, we better be very, very careful. 
Do we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Or do we know of Jesus but trust ourselves? Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 to 23 in the World English Bible says this, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will tell me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many mighty works? Then I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. People can do things in Jesus' name, and when they come face to face with him, will hear the words, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. How is that possible? I think it comes down to this. Pride. A heart filled with pride, not with humility and awe-inspired fear of God. Not only does God hate pride, but look at James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 1. Sorry, 5, 5. James and Peter both quote Proverbs 3, verse 34 in saying, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Not just does God hate pride, but he actively opposes the proud. And that should terrify us. If we're proud, he opposes us. Yes, we can have faith, we can have salvation, but if we're filled with pride, we are walking a dangerous path. If you looked at the world today, you might think that the biggest sin that Christians were concerned about was homosexuality. Maybe that's true. Maybe many Christians are most concerned about that. But I'd like to propose another sin that we should be more worried about. Because it's a sin that every single person on the face of the earth struggles with. You struggle with it. I struggle with it. You guessed it. Pride. Pride is lethal. It is the most powerful weapon the devil has in his arsenal. He used it right at the beginning. You are equal to God, he said to Eve. And right now, today, there is sin in your life that pride is saying, it's not that bad, it's not really a sin. At least I'm not doing that. I'm not as bad as that person. The Bible doesn't really mean it when it says, don't do that. The Bible doesn't really mean it when it says, do that. That's pride talking. Pride tells us we're fine, that we can just keep doing what we're doing. No worries. But we should worry. Because look where the Bible shows us that pride leads. It led to a people chosen by God rejecting him. Don't let your pride lead you down the same path. So in conclusion today, my challenge is that we humble ourselves before God that we ask him for humility, that he would help us to not be proud. We need to be alert to the danger of pride, because pride does nothing but destroy. Perhaps this scares you, and you're worried about being proud, and worried about how it will harm your faith, your relationship with God. That's a good thing, because we should be worried about pride. We should be looking at God with awe, fear, and trembling. 
Yes, he loves us, but he does not love our pride. So we need to get rid of it. If the danger of pride worries you, that's good. Because it's the people who don't worry about pride who should be the most worried about it. Thank you for joining me today on God's Word Today's World. If you'd like to view the show notes or leave a comment, you can find the complete list of all podcast episodes over at www.godswordtodaysworld.com forward slash listen. Hope to see you next week. Now go apply God's Word to your life.